Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and this is the second part of my conversation with Harlan Zimmerman, senior partner of Sevian Capital and head of sustainability for the firm. In part one, Harlan introduces us to Sevian's activist investment approach and how sustainability fits into that framework. He also reflects on the investment industry's initial moves towards linking ESG metrics and compensation. I continue our conversation by asking Harlan if linking net zero commitments to remuneration plans was only relevant for the more carbon intensive companies. No, not at all. Um, I mean, first off, look at the number of companies that themselves have made long-term commitments and they have long-term net net zero targets or whatever they are. If it's important enough for them to make a commitment, then we as owners should care enough about it and the board should care enough about it to try to make sure that it's likely to be achieved and to simply rely on the goodwill of a CEO and management team today to move towards a target 15 years away seems pretty, um, in, in, in our view, uh, impractical. And so uh, it does not need to be a carbon intensive company. Now, if, um, if it's a, it doesn't mean that it, that is necessarily the most important ESG related metric for the company. But if, may, if, if, if they are carbon intensive somewhat, I don't just mean a mining company or oil and gas company, it could be any sort of manufacturing company or transport or logistics company. If it's important for them to work on um, to set a target, then as I say, we should be creating the conditions for them to achieve it. And it seems pretty likely to me that there's going to be wholesale carbon pricing coming, you know, that, that, that will be uh, um, prevalent across most geographies um, in the near future, you know, even um, more so than today. And carbon prices, I guess, are going to be going up. And therefore, we have a strong economic incentive also to try to help ensure our companies are making the progress today to position themselves for that, as well as to achieve their net zero targets, which according to everything that I've read, the corporate sector is clearly failing to do thus far. So further change is absolutely necessary. And this is, you know, what is one of my main concerns with the, with the, metrics that have been included so far and you know you were quoted in the FT article about this issue about so many so many of the metrics getting paid out in full but we really haven't seen the the, the improvement if you like that's required to get us to net zero it's actually quite simple in my view um in in concept of course the devil is in the detail but if a company has a 2040 target they should have a roadmap to achieving that target by the way, if they don't have the roadmap, they are already way late, and that in itself is a problem. But they should already have a roadmap, or they better get one really, really quickly. And that roadmap needs to be embedded in the LTIP so that over the next three to five years or whatever it is, the management team knows what they need to achieve in their tenure to position the, the next team to make the further progress that's necessary to have a chance and of hitting the target. And here, the companies already have the targets 
and they already have the deadlines. We don't need to create these. All we're saying to them is, hey, take your target and put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. Now, in order for that to be effective, what also needs to happen is the targets, clearly they need to be measurable, um, which they should be for this sort of metric, of course, because um, there are there are easily available numbers around these things. And um, furthermore, we would say that these targets should be transparent so that when the pay plan comes, all of us as shareholders can assess whether the targets are actually aligned with the path. So we can see what the actual numbers are. And these, for 99% of companies, these targets should not be commercially sensitive. There is not the same rationale to um, keep them hidden as companies sometimes use for a financial or business target. So these companies, they should be me- these metrics, they should be measurable, they should be transparent, and they should be fully aligned with the long-term goals that the companies themselves have already put out there. And you, you criticized scorecards both in the report and earlier on. Can you just explain what the major issue is with scorecards? Sure. What many companies have done is um, they, they already have management scorecards, which are, say, 20% of a management team's um, annual pay. And that is based on the board's assessment of the management team's performance vis-a-vis a number of factors. It might be corporate leadership, it might be reputational management, it might be strategy development. And what many companies have done is simply added as a further bullet point, sustainability performance. And there is no measurability around those things. And of course, therefore, there's no transparency. And those sorts of targets pay out at a much higher rate than quantitative financial targets because they're dependent on the board's own assessment and boards don't want to upset CEOs typically and whatnot. So those sorts of targets, they're in, in a way, in many cases, another form of greenwashing. Put something in there. The only thing that does really is create a check for the box asking, do you have an ESG metric in pay? We would rather not have those at all. Better to take 10, 20% of the LTIP or the annual plan or both, depending on the company, and link that to a very, very clear, measurable target that the company already has um, either in its long-term climate plan or for another metric, probably in its sustainability plan, um, and make that target transparent and bring that to shareholders. And of course, when it's brought to shareholders and it is transparent, it's more likely to be that much more challenging than when the company doesn't need to communicate what the actual target is. So measurable, transparent, you said also significant what kind of weight or do you have a rule of thumb for what, what should be included? Well, it, it depends. I mean, it depends on the company, um, but generally speaking, 10% or more um, would be a good starting point. But today, today where we're at, by the way, in the UK, is that um, probably 75% of companies now have some sort of metric. Um, probably half of those are as good as they need to be. 
The UK, France also has in their corporate governance code that there should be ideally an ESG linked metric. Um, but so most companies have those, but way too few are, we would say functional metrics because they're insufficiently measurable and transparent. And interestingly, the Nordics where we've been doing a lot of work and where um, many people think sustainability is quite strong, um, less than 10% of companies had an ESG metric as of uh, a year ago or so. And it's now a big focus of the institutional investor community there to drive change in that area. So there is a trend, but as you could, could tell from our conversation, it's absolutely crucial that it's not just having a metric. That is not good enough. The quality of the metric needs to be good enough as well. And that means um, big enough to matter, significant, tied to strategy, measurable, transparent. And if the company has long-term commitments, such as a net zero target, of course, those metrics should be aligned with the path to achieving that target. As you say, we've kind of achieved the first part, which is getting the ESG metrics into remuneration plans. It's now the quality. It's really the quality is, has to be the focus. And there's a risk, and some companies may have done it with the best intentions, but there's a risk that there's a large amount of, of, of if you like, poor quality metrics that are just resulting in, in higher payouts. So coming on to the report that you wrote with, or you supported in, in developing with LBS and PwC, how did that collaboration come about? So we have been very active on this topic with the leading remuneration consultants generally. And PwC is one of the leading firms in this field um, globally and in Europe. And so in the course of our discussions, they, they have published previous reports. They wanted to take this topic up. We had a series of sessions with them and we gave them some input, um, our views on the issues and the, um, the, some of the, uh, our thoughts on the metrics. And they then went away and they looked at uh, together with um, LBS, went away and looked at this topic in the context of the largest 50 companies in Europe um, that have specifically focused on um, emissions and those with um, emissions targets. And they then asked us, in addition to write a foreword to the report, which we did sharing some of our views, which could be a little bit more hawkish um, than was appropriate for them, perhaps. While reading the report, going through those significant, measurable, transparent criteria that you mentioned for Climate Action 100 companies, where they account for 80% of global emissions. Yeah, um, just let me step back and say th this is not all our progress. Um, number one, I think there was uh, there, there were good developments and um, we'd like to think that we played a role in helping them along. Um, but there is good progress, and, and many other investors are taking this up and adding their weight, some who are much bigger than we are um, with broader portfolios. I would mention here, for instance, Allianz Global Investors and Legal in General here in the UK have come out with really good policies as well. Um, and um, But the, the, I'd say the next focus is on the transparency and ensuring so that we can see that the, not only are the measures the right ones, but that the targets are sufficiently ambitious 
and that they are aligned with the long-term goals. Because it's not good enough for a company just to tell us, yeah, yeah, don't worry, a portion of our CEO's pay is going to be determined by emissions reduction progress. And there's a number there, but we can't tell you what it is. I don't know if that's a good target or a bad target. So that's what they need to be telling us. And, and there is absolutely no reason they shouldn't be telling us that other than the fact that not enough people have required it yet, because a few years ago, we weren't thinking about this. Well, this is the, this is a key point <clears throat> for us, your report, and also say, as you saw, it came out with a similar um, framework, is extremely useful in educating investors, and that's our, ourselves and our audience, about how we should organize ourselves, how we should think about it. And what was really useful about the report was there's there's one section called the devil is in the detail. And when you, you look at it then from that perspective, you can see the significant transparency measurable, but then you're looking for things like are offsets included? How do we treat uh, M&A? And beyond that, what about uh, renewable energy certificates? All of these questions arise because it is quite a complicated subject. So by having ourselves well organized at a, at a higher level, it allows us to dig in and understand what we should be looking for. Absolutely. There are a number of complex sub-issues here. Um, but I know this isn't what you're saying. That isn't a good reason or excuse to not tackle them and to not do this. Because almost all of these issues, for instance, are relevant um, for financial metrics. When a company makes an acquisition or sells something, how do we adjust the EPS? Do we just say, okay, we're not going to pay them a financial bonus anymore because it's too complicated to figure out? Of course we don't. We work through it. And the remuneration committees and the board, they're well paid to, 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 to work through these issues. And they should be working through them. And they should be coming to shareholders with a clear and transparent proposal that they are proud of. We spend so much time looking at financials, obviously, that the, the industry is so aware of how to do that. I think this is where we have to go, right? So we we think about adjusting financials and understanding those adjustments. When we think about emissions, we've got to understand the boundaries of those emissions. We've got to understand things like whether scope three emissions or scope one emissions are being pushed into scope three and therefore having an impact that we would not understand really for, for remuneration. Yeah. Um, fully agree. Com complex issues. Some of it eventually is going to be helped probably by regulation and by accounting standards. But if we sit around and wait for all of that to happen, in my view, it's going to be too late if it's not already too late. And so we need to push forward. Sometimes um, perfect can be the enemy of the good. We can't. Um, this approach of using REM, it is already a power that investors have. And we should be using it, not waiting for other people, um, for the EU or um, the accounting standards board to come address these issues in three, four, five years. For me, I look at it and I go, when we have these remuneration targets linked to de decarbonization, it should be about real world emission reductions. So we shouldn't be paying for divesting of, of assets. And secondly, we need to look closely when company funds are used to offset emissions, as I said, carbon offsets or using green electricity contracts. For you, do you have anything to add to that? Again, we have the luxury of not having to be too um, policy 
prescriptive in terms of the details because we we ourselves can look at every individual company but in general i agree with those principles and um so i don't i don't have much to add to them and in terms of success stories or companies that you've seen you you, you mentioned Snyder earlier on would you add anything any other examples i could mention one company from our portfolio which is abb which in the past had only a health and safety metric and and we've owned um more than 5% and one of our co-founders has been on the board of ABB for a number of years and when we came up with this approach and made our policy public we of course wrote to our companies and we challenged ABB on this and told them that we thought it was a perfect fit for them because a lot of their business is tied to energy efficiency and they had some good and ambitious emissions targets and um there was a lack of agreement within the board on this and they therefore decided to go out and consult shareholders and uh, as we were told the vast majority of the shareholders they consulted were supportive of abb doing something the board went away and did exactly what we wanted them to be doing which was to be grappling with these issues to be, be because now it's pay matter now it's serious business and we know that sustainability went way up the agenda for the board because they needed to do that to grapple through these issues and then they themselves ultimately came back with some very ambitious um plans so um for the LTIP 20% of the LTIP is now directly tied to emissions reduction along their path you can go to their annual report you can see exactly the path you can see exactly the targets so it's um gold standard in terms of its measurability its trans its um transparency and its alignment and they also introduced um new metrics in the short term plans uh up to 20% of pay with individual metrics for the top layer of management team at uh, at ABB and subsequently um ABB has in a way become very proud of this and so when they present themselves and present their sustainability um aspects which are very big in their persona um this is one of the things that they commonly mention amongst the top items when they talk about sustainability and we have been told that it absolutely um gave a huge jolt to the organization in terms of how they looked at sustainability and the seriousness um with which they're taking it both um in- including of course um as an opportunity not just as a threat or a cost or something that they have to deal with like you have seen management and boards change very often very quickly or some kind of event event has has prompted that have you seen the experience on boards in relation to climate really develop over the last you know, five or so years or what, what was it like if you go back back into maybe 2010 from that point onwards it just must be a completely different planet in terms of how boards are operating um yes i think most companies are beginning to recognize that for, for many of them coping with climate change is the single biggest challenge 
their companies will have to deal with and maybe have had to deal with since, I don't know, um, World War II. And of course, there are huge risks and threats, um, but there are also huge opportunities for the companies that take the right steps now to prepare themselves. So absolutely, we are seeing it as a top topic in the vast majority of our companies. Where would you say the balance is between people looking at it as a risk issue rather than an opportunity issue? I think it depends totally on their business. With the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, we're hearing from more and more companies it's a game changer. Do you get the same feel from companies that are operating in Europe? I, again, it depends on, in, in my experience, it depends on the sector. It's a factor for everyone, um, of course, whether it's a life or death factor and huge opportunity or not depends very much on the sector. We've been talking about incentives and incentives drive behavior. Do you think there's enough incentives there at, at, from government policy, subsidies, regulation to really move us fast enough? Or do we need more incentive and perhaps, you know, maybe not less regulation, less stick, but at least more incentive. Obviously, this is a personal view, but I think the the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act has played a really valuable role in catalyzing thinking um, and hopefully results here in Europe, both in the U.K. and the EU, where things have not been good enough yet. Um, I think in, in a way, uh, the populace is much more attuned to these things. In, in Europe and the UK than perhaps in the US where I'm originally from. And so that, that's been very supportive, but I think um, more can be done and seems, seems to be underway from a governmental point of view. Uh, and as I say, I, I believe it's likely we're, um, carbon pricing is going to become more and more of a factor going forward. And that, that is obviously gonna drive a big change in corporate thinking as carbon prices go up and up. Harlan, this has been really great. It is so helpful to tease out these issues and understand more fully how we think about linking incentives with sustainability goals and climate goals more specifically. The approach you help develop offers us investors a framework to organize ourselves when assessing a company, ensuring, as you said, that climate metrics are significant, measurable, fully transparent, and tied to those public commitments of reaching net zero. I would highly recommend to listeners to read the Paying for Net Zero report, using incentives to create accountability for climate goals, and follow your work, Harlan, as you continue to develop and, and share best practice with the investment community. Thank you for the kind words, and it was a pleasure speaking with you today, John. And thank you, our audience, for listening. If you found this conversation as interesting as I did, then please hit like and share with others. Goodbye. 